That's harmonica player and 2017 National Heritage Fellow, Phil Wiggins. And this is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Well, as you just heard, Phil Wiggins is one of the best blues harmonica players out there. He produces a rich sound with amazing dexterity, moving from a rounded melody to a scorching solo in a moment. Phil Wiggins came up in Washington, D.C., and while he was still a kid, he played with great bluesmen like Flora Moulton, John Jackson, Johnny Shines, and of course guitarist John Cephas, his partner for almost 35 years. Cephas and Wiggins came together when Phil joined Chief Ellis's band, the Barrel House Rockers. After Ellis retired, Cephas and Wiggins began performing and recording together on their own. Although John Cephas was Phil's elder by some 25 years, the two quickly developed into a partnership of incomparable musicality and mutual appreciation. Audiences and critics alike took notice. Together, Cephas and Wiggins toured the world, cut a dozen records, won awards, and played at venues from the Sydney Opera House to Carnegie Hall to the White House. After John Cephas passed away in 2009, Phil Wiggins looked to extend his musical reach, playing with a number of musicians like Ben Turner, Taj Mahal, and Corey Harris. He started an acoustic string band called the Chesapeake Cheeks, a group that plays swing, roots, and of course, blues, both Piedmont and Delta. And in case you're wondering how Piedmont blues is different from Delta blues, here's Phil Wiggins to straighten it out. Piedmont blues which I'm associated with mainly because of my partner that I played with for 35 years, John Cephas. He was a Piedmont-style player. And that style is defined by the, the technique that's used on the guitar. It's country blues, and what distinguishes Piedmont style is that on the guitar, he would pick out a melody line on the treble strings with his fingers and pick out a, an alternating bass line at the same time with his thumb. Piedmont, you you would think of more of the guitar being used almost as if it was a piano. So you'd sort of hear the left hand and right hand going, and that's really what, what Piedmont style is. And what about Delta? What's Delta blues? Delta blues, well, let's see. I'm, it's more kind of a riff. There's not usually like two parts going on at the same time. The guitar line will be like a, a phrase, like a riff or a phrase that is in unison with the vocal line or, or like a counter melody to the vocal line. With the Delta style, you just hear like kind of one hand at a time. Thank you. That is a really good explanation. You were born and raised in Washington, is that correct? That's, that is correct. Was your household musical? Was there music in the house? Well, yeah, yeah. So... I should say my father passed away when I was about seven. So my memories of him are, I don't know, cloudy and maybe romanticized and maybe larger than life. But but I do remember my mother and father both singing in, in church. And I was told later on that my father played the piano, but I don't really have any memory of hear, hearing him sitting at a piano and playing. But, um, yeah, my family, you know, we, everybody sang in church. My mother and father both were in church choir. You know, my parents were from Alabama, from Titusville. Whenever ever my mother talked about home, she was talking about Titusville. And we spent a lot of summers down there. The church 
that my grandmother went to, I think that the music that I heard at that church really influenced me quite a bit. I mean, I, I love that. And I think that's where I really started to fall in love with, you know, acoustic country blues. Even though it wasn't blues, it was gospel music. That was the music that seemed to really touch me, to really have more impact on me than just about any other music that I had heard. So you started with the saxophone? That was your first instrument? I would guess, yeah. But, you know, I mean, the harmonica, you know, I ha- had them like toy harmonicas and whatever. I always had one from the time I was really young. You know, I always had one in my pocket. And I think, you know, I started really seriously trying to make music on it. I was about 16 years old, I guess. And I just went out with my, my paper route money and bought a harmonica. I'd heard some some great uh, records and heard what it could do and had no idea how to make those sounds myself, but I just kept fooling with it until I figured until it out. Did. Yeah. Who did you listen to that made you take the harmonica seriously and, and think, oh, my oh. God, this this is what I want? Well, that's, that's a good question. Um, I, let's see. Flora Moulton. She was a, a street musician in Washington, and she played the slide guitar, and she was blind, and she played slide guitar, and she sang, and she sang gospel music, and she played on the street, and she would play her slide guitar, and she had her foot jammed in a tambourine, and she would, you know, keep rhythm for herself, and she would sing gospel songs and what she called truth songs, which were songs that she made herself that were just about life, how to navigate through life. You know, she was there from the time I was very young, and I started fooling with the harmonica. I got reintroduced to her as as a player, and that inspired me to want to make music on the harmonica because it was cheap, (laughs) and I could keep it in my pocket. Also, because it was real flexible, it seemed to me to work the way your voice works both in terms of like that you can slur notes, you can bend notes. Also, it seems to be sort of almost intuitive. You know, you have an idea and it just comes out the same way. Like you have an idea and you speak it. You have an idea and you play it. You know, it feels like that to me. And that I think that's what drew me to the harmonica. So the harmonica and blues almost came together at the same time for you. Yes, yes. We don't think of Washington, D.C. as being a place where there's blues, but that's really missing a lot of its history musically, isn't it? That's true. That's true. I mean, what, you know, my parents moved to D.C., like I said, from Titusville, Alabama. In in my neighborhood, all, all the parents were a part of that migration of people that moved from the deep south to D.C., and they brought their customs and their celebrations and their food with them from the deep south. And so that's the environment that I grew up in and the music that people loved, you know, was blues, you know, southern music. Also, I, I was lucky in, in D.C. and northern Virginia, but there there were some really great players that made their homes in, in D.C., John Jackson, Archie Edwards, um, oh, tell us about Archie Edwards' barber shop. Oh, uh, okay. Archie was a barber, and on Saturday afternoon he would close up shop early, and by you know mid afternoon his guitar playing friends would start showing up, and they would have jam session that would go well into the evening, and he would hold court. All the players in the D.C. area knew him, and they they came and they jammed there. And that went on for ages. And, and then some young folks found out about it and started coming and got to be friends. Well, you know, Archie started playing out and, and touring and, and meeting people and, and teaching some, some younger folks. And, and then Archie passed away. 
and a bunch of the young people that had been coming created this uh, foundation, the R.G. Edwards Blues Heritage Foundation, I believe it's called. And w- what they what they did was just continue the jam session. And it, but it became more than that. Too. It became a meeting place for the whole acoustic blues community. If you wanted to know what was going on in town, or, or you know who was playing where. You know, you'd come to the barbershop, and it's still going. the The original barbershop got sold out from under us, and now they have a, a location in Riverdale, Maryland, and it was a, a great continuation of what Archie had started. And so. when when was the first time you played out? Do you remember? Hmm. When I was in in high school, I had a a band. We played Tavern Square in Alexandria, Virginia. There was a guy, an old guy named Philip Roberts, and he was in charge of this concert series at Tavern Square. I really don't exactly know how he heard about me and, and my band, but we we got hired to, to play there. The first date that we played there was the day that I met John Jackson because this guy, Philip Roberts, had invited John to come out and play before us, and he and his wife, Cora, came and I just like immediately connected with him. I mean, and he he was an amazing world class musician, but just real. He was also a grave digger. He was also a, a a collector and an authority on Civil War history and memorabilia. And John Jackson played guitar. Yes, I remember he and Cora. Like I say, he was so friendly and down to earth, and generous. And after he heard me play, he invited me to come and and play with him. He was due to play at a festival at Glen Echo the following weekend. And I thought, sure, he was just being nice, that he didn't really mean it. And I didn't go. And then and then the next time I saw him, he was actually angry with me for not showing up because he, he had really meant it sincerely. And after that, I realized, you know, yeah, he means what he says and actually is that generous. What kind of harmonica do you play? Honer Marine Band harmonicas. It's called the diatonic harmonica and it's it's got uh, 10 holes. <laughs> you like about the particular sound of that harmonica? Well, the, the Marine Band has metal reed plates, and the comb that that separates the reed plates is made out of wood. I think it's pear wood. I think it, it is coated with, like, beeswax. But anyway, it's a soft wood, and it, to me it has just a real beautiful tone. A lot of them are made from plastic, and you can really tell the difference in the tone, and that's what I like about the Marine Band. And you play acoustic or traditional harmonica. So yeah. what does that mean in terms of the sound that you create and how you create it? Okay. So what you're hearing is the sound that my body creates through the harmonica. In comparison, you know, people that play what's called electric harmonica will use kind of a public address microphone and, and an amplifier, and they plug it in and they play the harmonica right up against the microphone. And that gets a real distorted in comparison. And with the microphone, like, right in your hands, you can't really use your hands. I, I use my hands a lot to shape the sound of the music as it's coming out the back. So it's like my 
hands are, are like a cup and almost like a second mouth, can make in vowel shapes, you know, so every, every note that's coming out in the back of the harmonica is shaped by my hands. you have a microphone in your hands you, you can't really do that and I really feel like with an amplifier I can only get one sound whereas the way I play between what I do with my mouth and what I do with my breath and breathing from my diaphragm and what I do with my hands I can get a really really wide variety Boy, of, of sounds. do you ever well, do you ever I try to <laughs> how did you develop your sound in the beginning I was lucky that I didn't know any other harmonica players and wasn't really aware of any other players, even like on recordings. I, I was aware of, of Sonny Terry, and that was about the only one. And so a lot of what I stole from when I was learning was piano and guitar and clarinet and trumpet and things like that. That's what I stole from, and I feel like that really helped me to develop a style. And then also playing just in a duo, playing with John, I, I kind of figured out that a lot of the times my best job would be to use the harmonica as percussion to help keep the beat. I do that a lot, and I th think that also helped to develop the style that I have. Barrel House Rockers. Who was in that group, and how did you get into it? Uh, okay, in 1976, I was at the Smithsonian uh, Folklife Festival. I had been playing with Flora Moulton, who I mentioned, the street uh, musician, gospel singer. So it was at that festival, and I had gotten to know Johnny Shines uh, really well. I had talked to him about how, although I was loving the gospel, that acoustic blues was really what I was after. And he said, well, you know, just, just bide your time. You'll get your chance. And he's the one that actually, actually introduced me to Chief Ellis, who's the piano player that was the leader of the Barrel House Rockers. And John Cephas was the guitar player. And they had a bass player, um, James Bellamy. Johnny Shines was doing a jam session with them at the festival, and then he invited me on stage with them. And then I followed them that evening to the Child Herald, which is a blues bar and restaurant, and I got to sit in with them there. And after hanging out with them for, I guess it was about a week that we hung out together at that festival, and then they invited me to join the Barrel House Rockers, which I jumped at the opportunity. Now, how old were you? I was probably like 20. Oh, my God. Yeah. You were yeah. a baby. Yeah. And, the, you know, these were blues elders. Yeah, true. Were true. you scared? Were you nervous? I wasn't. I guess I didn't have... You were have, too young to I be did, nervous. I didn't, didn't have sense enough to be ner <laughs> nervous. Uh. But, I mean, you know, they really made me feel welcome and at home, and I felt like it was what I was meant to do. Like I said, I didn't have sense enough to be <laughs> nervous. The interesting thing about that for me was, like I said, my, my father passed when I was seven, and I haven't in, in my life come across very many people that ever knew my father. But when they had Jimmy Carter's inauguration, my mother happened to be in town, and so I invited her to come. We, we were doing a, an event for Jimmy Carter's inauguration that took place at the train station. And when she walked into the room, and she saw Chief Ellis sitting at the piano, and she said, Wilbur, what are you doing here? <laughs> and it turns out that 
Chief Ellis, also known as Wilbur Ellis, was a classmate of my father in grade school. And and I had no idea. And you had no idea until yeah. then. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And so I was like, well, I'm, I must be in the right place <laughs> at the right time. Although uh, Chief, after that, you know, he because he had been uh, sharing whatever adult beverages he had available. And he says, no, I can't give you any more moonshine. I know your people now. <laughs> <laughs> what did you learn from them, not just about playing, which I'm sure was a lot, but also about performing? Hmm. I guess to be myself, you know, I mean... A lot of music that I was listening to at the time, there was like a real separation between the person and the person as a musician, like with rock music or a lot of the music that I listened to, you know, people would dress up fancy and go on stage and take on this persona or whatever. And these folks that I that I got to know, Chief Ellis, John Cephas, John Jackson, they would dress nice because they were going to be in public and all, but they just were themselves on stage. They were real down-to-earth. And one thing that impressed me about all of those people was they always had time for whoever it was that wanted to be around their music, to hear their music, to learn about their music, and to learn about their lives, you know? They always had time to talk to people. That really impressed me. There was no star complex or anything like that. I think it's because at the time that they started playing music, they never really thought of it as a profession. They thought of it as... Well, we need music in our house, just like we need bread and we need tomatoes. So we'll grow our own tomatoes, we'll bake our own bread, and we'll make our own music. And people had day jobs. Yeah. Did you have a day job then? I did. (laughs) You know, I I consider myself lucky, too, that I never had a good job. I feel like my life kind of was a a slow process of, you know, limiting my my options to the point where it was you know, sink or swim with music. When were you able to quit the day job? Huh. I was working in the mailroom at a, at a law firm. I would say that was probably like the mid-80s. So that was yeah. quite some time, yeah. Yeah. Now, you and John Cephas, how did you begin that extraordinary 35-year partnership? Chief Ellis retired and moved back to Alabama. John had been getting calls from people wanting him to come out and play, and he really wasn't enjoying doing it by himself. And so he called me up. He said, you know, would you like to do some with me? And I I said, yeah. And uh, so we started, we just kind of gradually started doing that as as a duo. John Cephas and Phil Wiggins became internationally renowned stars of Piedmont Blues. They recorded more than a dozen critically acclaimed albums, winning the prestigious W.C. Handy Blues Award in 1984 for Best Traditional Album of the Year, and in 1987 as Entertainers of the Year. What do you think it was about you two that worked so well together? Well, for me, it was, number one, that John probably was the best musician and best singer that that I had met up to that point in my life. And I just loved the way he played and the way he sang and how real it was. No, like, pretense to it. It was just 
what he did. Why he put up with me, I don't know the answer to that, <laughs> that part. Seriously, I think just because I did have sense enough when we were playing music together to keep my ears open and to figure out what at, at any point in time as we were playing what my job should be, that the main goal was that the two of us sounded as good as we possibly could together, that it wasn't about like me being out front or me sounding good on my own. It was about the total sound of everything that was going on. And so stay out of the way of the vocals, you know, help support the rhythm here, you know, repeat this phrase so it'll strengthen it and all that kind of stuff. And I think John, you know, I mean, I do know because he actually said so that he appreciated me as a musician and the things that I figured out to make us both sound good and to make the music good. Was it like you were in musical conversation with each other in yeah, some ways? A lot, a lot of the time, yeah. And I think with the Piedmont style of music, that it really lends itself to that. You know, I mean, there's a, there's a certain amount of a groove, but it is, in a lot of ways, more like a conversation. And I think that's what I like about it the most. I'm responding to what he's given me. We played together for over 30 years. And so after a while, it was like we could just really feel each other could really anticipate each other. There's no substitute for having spent that much time together, playing together. I mean, it's a, it's kind of an interesting realization now that he's gone. It doesn't really seem like I have time in my life to learn to play with someone else as well as I could play with John. They began touring, first around the United States and then around the world. We did a lot of touring, like we toured all over Europe and we toured... We went to Japan, we went to Australia. The easiest way to state it is that we have performed on every continent except Antarctica. And they did multiple tours for the State Department, who chose them as cultural ambassadors to represent Piedmont Blues to the world. They sent us to Africa, which was a pretty amazing milestone for me. I'd never imagined that the little harmonica would take me to this place that I, you know, I've always been longing to go there. So we did that, and then and then also we did a tour of Central and South America and the Caribbean. We we went to China. That was organized by the Kennedy Center. And you played at the White House. Yes, yes, we did. That was great. It was during Clinton's administration. B.B. King and Johnny Lang and Della Reese were there. That was amazing. I mean, it was great to meet President Clinton and to meet Hillary. One of the great things for me was that they let me bring my daughters with me that were seven and ten, I think. They got to meet President Clinton. And really the biggest thrill for, for them was to get to meet B.B. King and spend the whole day around him. That was amazing for me, too. When did you start writing songs? Huh, that's a good question, too. <laughs> it seems like I've always made up songs. I always loved words and playing with words, and I always loved poetry. I remember I took a poetry class in college where I wrote some poems. But I think probably about the same time that I started playing with John, I started really making up songs. I mean, I, I've always enjoyed that. When I'm in conversations or with people or hearing conversations, I'm always looking for the poetry in the conversations, looking for the strong statements. I feel like that that's where poetry happens. Poetry slash lyrics happens. You start with words rather than I, a, a rhythm? or I, I, I do. I do. To the point where actually I've had a couple of times where I was making a song and then realized that it wasn't singable. 
And so I'm conscious now, as soon as I have an idea for a song, to start singing it at the same time that I'm working out the, the phrases. Because I'll, I did, I, I came up with some phrases that I was really married to, and I couldn't let them go, but couldn't sing them. You couldn't get and them I, out I, of I your had, mouth. Had to, had to give them up, yeah. <laughs> well, as we mentioned, John passed away in 2009, right. which had to have been this profound, life-changing moment for you because a friend, a mentor, a musical partner. Mm -hmm. Can you just talk a little bit about how you made that transition? Well, it was interesting um, trying to play with other people, first of all. I mean, I realized pretty quickly that I had a pretty narrow comfort zone after playing with the same person for 35 years, just in terms of rhythms of music and being being pulled out of that, you know. And at the same time, I mean, it was great because everything was all an adventure. I will always miss John and miss his music. And like I say, I don't really feel like I have enough time left in my life to learn to play with anyone else as well. And I mean, the other thing about John was coming up in the generation that he came up in and in the environment that he came up in, music wasn't like a profession. It was it was a soundtrack for celebration, for parties and things. So he had a real strong rhythm. People could dance to that music. They could feel it. They could feel the rhythm of it. And most of the guitar players that I've wound up playing with since then, they haven't had that experience, and so they don't have as strong a sense of rhythm, and they don't have the understanding that, that, that part of my job is to lay down this beat so these people can move, that these people can dance, you know. And so I, I, I miss that. But I got to the point after John passed on that I was just saying yes to whoever rang my phone, and it got me into some pretty amazing musical adventures and predicaments and things, you know. But then, too, I got into playing all this music that I've been loving all this time that I really didn't get a chance to play when I was with John. Well, for one thing, I got to play my original songs a lot more, and I had and I got them out there a lot more. I had, did a lot more singing. I mean, John had this amazing, beautiful voice, and he did like 90% of the singing when, when we performed together. So I've done a lot more singing and developed that talent a lot more. You have a great voice, actually. I really love it. <laughs> well, thank you. So the fun thing, too, I formed my own band, the Chesapeake Sheiks, which is acoustic guitar, acoustic bass, violin, and piano. And we, we do a lot of swing standards and tort songs and Delta blues, Piedmont blues, a lot of my original songs. We, we do all that, but it's kind of like a swing band, string band setting, and I really really enjoy that. I mean, I've just l learned some beautiful melodies. Yeah, it's a great band. I saw you in Laurel last year. Oh, oh wow. Yeah, it was oh. fabulous. <laughs> And the other musicians are younger. Yes. And you are now the elder statesman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I that's get... a transition. Yeah. yeah, no, it's great. I get to be the old, cranky old guy. You know? 
It's great. I love it because they approach the music with so much respect and reverence, but also so much energy and wanting to put their own take on it, their own interpretation. And because there are a lot of young people now with, you know, all this great technology and the technology makes all these really incredible recordings just so easily available. But they listen to that stuff and they try to recreate it note for note. And these guys that I play with, they don't do that. They love that music and they're inspired by it. But again, like none of us have sense enough to try to do it exactly like that. We want to do our own thing with it. Well, right? it's like you have the feeling of it yes. and then your interpretation of that feeling. Yeah. It's like a, the spark and then we just take it and run with it like that. And you have to talk about the Phil Wiggins house party. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. A couple of years ago, two really great dancers came into my life, and one is Junius Lee Brickhouse. He dances to Piedmont Blues. So Junius Brickhouse dances with me and performs with me with the combo that I called Phil Wiggins' House Party, which is myself and Marcus Moore on violin and my good friend from Arlington, Rick Franklin, that plays uh, Piedmont-style fingerstyle guitar. So it's three three musicians and Junius dancing. And what interested you in bringing dancing on the stage? I, I feel like every note of music I've ever played in my life has been dance music, but it's never been presented as that. And that's always been a frustration to me. I don't feel like this music was ever meant for people sitting on their butts, you know, analyzing. It was meant to dance. And a lot of people nowadays don't think of music as dance music unless it has drums. That's what attracted me to Piedmont style to begin with. It's just this this great rhythm. It's a really strong, really interesting, really fun rhythm that can be tricky. It can be complicated at times, you know. But to me, it makes you want to get up off your butt and move. But it's hardly ever presented as that. So I've always wanted to reconnect. Marry those two again. Yes. And then finally, Phil, you know, John was named a fellow in 1989. You were a lad of, what, 34 at the time? (laughs) And now you have been named a National Heritage Fellow. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I'm thrilled that that has happened. I feel really fortunate, and I feel it's great to be recognized for doing what I do that I've always loved. I just did what I love to do. And to be recognized for that is just wonderful to me. It feels really good. It makes me feel like I'm in the right place. Doing the right thing. I feel many, many congratulations. I'm thrilled. I mean, that it's sort of still sinking in. Yeah, you got some time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's harmonica player and 2017 National Heritage Fellow, Phil Wiggins. Find out more about Phil at philwiggins.com and learn about the other 2017 National Heritage Fellows at arts.gov. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.